My friends over at serenitynewsletter.com have a special opportunity open to those interested in learning advanced investing techniques in the crypto space. This membership is of the highest quality and is run by a dear friend of mine who happens to manage one of the most successful crypto hedge funds in the world. Crypto is the future, and those who make smart plays now have an opportunity to earn life-changing returns. Go to serenitynewsletter.com to watch a special video presentation now. That's serenitynewsletter.com. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. I have a very big announcement. After a ton of requests for a place for expat and expat hopefuls to network and get to know each other, I decided to start a new Facebook group. It's called the Expat Money Forum, and it's 100% free to join. We literally just started the group, so you can really network and get to know the individuals there. We will be keeping a very close eye on this group, and I already have three awesome moderators volunteer to help me out. So to make it easy on you, I set up a really simple redirect link. All you have to do to join this group right now is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash forum. We already have a bunch of previous guests from my show in the group, so you can ask your questions directly to the professionals or get help from the people who are on the ground in the country you are interested in being an expat in. So I hope that you will join us in our new Facebook group by going to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash forum, and I will see you there. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is the founder of Expanse Online, an innovative virtual secondary school, and he is one of the most experienced and innovative school program designers in the country. He is the author of The Habit of Thought, From Socratic Seminars to Socratic Practice, and lead author of Be the Solution, How Entrepreneurs and Conscious Capitalists Can Solve All the World's Problems. Today, we are going to be focused on the future of virtual online schools and why the focus should be on entrepreneurial skills and creative thought for students around the world. Please welcome to the show, Michael Strong. Michael, how are you? I'm delighted to be here, Mikkel. Well, we're very happy to have you. Why don't you take a minute and kind of walk us through your backstory? How did you get working in education and from such a libertarian perspective, I suppose? Well, great question and kind of two separate pieces there. Um, First, I love intellectual dialogue. So, you know, you were saying we would just chat. That's my life. In some ways, you could say that I love intellectual dialogue so much that I selfishly began creating schools at which I could read, think, and talk about ideas with kids. Um, So, you know, if one wanted an objectivist spin on this, this is pure selfishness to that extent. Um, But uh, more concretely, I had had a class in high school where we talked about ideas. We'd read Plato, Nietzsche, Buber, and talk about it. I loved it. Um, St. John's College is known as a great books college in the United States, campuses in Santa Fe and Annapolis, Maryland. For four years, all you do is read and talk about ideas, no lectures. Um, Basically, it's all about the history of Western civilization, but from the 
know Einstein, Nietzsche, and so forth. I actually was going to go there my senior year of high school. Instead, I got into Harvard, and my high school counselor said, look, you can study Plato and Greek and whatever at Harvard, plus you have a Harvard degree. I went to Harvard for one year, and it was famous people talking at me, lecture, take notes. For the most part, I hated it, went back to St. John's, and I describe it as, after my wife, my next greatest love of my life. Because yeah, it's fun to talk about ideas. And so then when I was in graduate school in Chicago at the University of Chicago, I began leading Socratic dialogues, Socratic seminars in Chicago public schools under Mortimer Adler's Paideia program. And that led to, by accident, basically a 35-year career in creating first public school programs, then private and a charter school, um, Socratic and later project-based education. So it gets complicated after that. Just quickly on the libertarian side, I was a good socialist when I went to the University of Chicago. At St. John's, I loved political philosophy on the one hand and philosophy of science on the other. And I wanted to go to Chicago to study the Chicago economists up close and personal and see why they were such free market ideologues. After I got there, I realized I did not understand economics, and I gradually became a libertarian because, you know, it depends on, uh, I'm not a big L libertarian, but very libertarian leaning because of once one understands public choice theory and how markets and government actually work, uh, markets work much, much, much better. Well, absolutely. And whenever we say libertarian on this podcast, I think a lot of my listeners know at this point, we're always referring to Baby L, small L, libertarian. I don't know very much about the LP. Um, it doesn't really matter to me. I'm not even American, so that doesn't matter to me. But definitely the, the thoughts and the philosophies of freedom and liberty are the things that I try to promote on this show. And the best way that I know how to do that is by going international, by being an expat, and by trying to find the place where the jurisdiction, which we will be talking about jurisdictions today, interestingly enough, um, fit your belief pattern. So I think that's super interesting. So let's pause for a second because you said Socratic. So, so explain to the audience, what does this mean? What is a Socratic idea? Right, so first, sometimes I substitute just intellectual dialogue because that's more familiar, people talking about ideas. Um, you know, not all conversations are conversations about ideas. Some conversations are gossip. Gossip is incredibly human, incredibly natural. Um, some conversations are practical practical, how do we get stuff done, how do we coordinate our activities. But some conversations are explicitly about what is true, what is the true version of justice, or how do we know what is good, or how do we know what is honorable. Um, anytime we're talking about ideas, I refer to that as Socratic because in ancient Greece, Periclean Athens, Socrates would walk up to random people on the street or maybe prestigious people on the street and say, yeah, what is justice, what is truth, what is goodness, what is piety? And often he would um, show by means of his questions that there were incoherences in their conventional understandings. So I see the Socratic inquiry into coming up with a consistent and coherent understanding of reality as the fundamental driver of Western civilization. The philosopher and mathematician Alfred North Whitehead once said that all of Western philosophy may be seen as a series of footnotes to Plato. I similarly see all of Western thought as really unpacking this notion of, hey, Mikkel thinks that, but he also thinks this. I don't get it. How are those consistent? And likewise. So I see the Socratic investigation of the true, the good, and the beautiful 
understanding how everybody comes up with a consistent, coherent understanding of concepts as, fundament, as a fundamental driver on the one hand of intellectual dialogue between people, and on the other hand of uh, inquiry, including scientific inquiry in the West. One small reason I think it might be useful to distinguish Socratic from intellectual is that there are postmoderns who no longer, in academia, who no longer follow the rules of consistent and coherent. So I'd say rationality is baked into the Socratic um, inquiry process, that if one is inconsistent, that's a problem. Whereas, of course, there are postmodern theorists that say, oh, we can be inconsistent. And for me, that completely undermines um, Western tradition, rationality, science, truth, objectivity, and so forth. So Socratic uh, inquiry is the mutual pursuit of the truth of good and the noble by means of rational dialogue in which we both expect each other to be consistent and coherent. And there's a sympathetic understanding, you know, predicting himself, but maybe not. Maybe he can reconcile that. That's a super quick vignette. So, so you went on to study these things, and this became such a passion of yours. How did that translate into you now building schools and working in education and using this as part of the foundation for those types of programs? A great question. So when I was in Chicago in the 1980s, Mortimer Adler, who was a famous figure in the mid-20th century, had launched the Paideia Project. It was an attempt to bring some of the best of classical education into public schools. As part of that, he wanted the schools to do Socratic seminars, and basically St. John's graduate these people because for four years he engaged in this kind of dialogue as a classroom activity. Whereas the standard teachers are top-down lecturing, and that's a very different model. So I was hired in Chicago to go inner-city classrooms and lead these Socratic discussions. From the very first, the kids were on fire. Um, it turns out kids love to talk. Uh, they don't like to be I found it incredibly engaging, fun, and powerful to lead Socratic discussions in classrooms. That led to a full-time job in Alaska leading, training teachers to lead Socratic discussions. We were on soft money, so once the grants fell through or exhausted themselves, parents asked me to start a private school. So by accident, I became uh, an educational entrepreneur. Um, I, at this point, had never taken an education course, and I had no entrepreneurial experience, so pure demand-driven. Um, and willy-nilly, then, I developed kind of a niche as um, alternative ed at the intellectual high end. So just one way to think about it is most alternative ed tends to be a little bit hippie and soft. Uh, many people think of intellectual rigor as very conventional, you know, the elite prep school th kind of thing. But in between there, um, I would say I've developed a very student-centered Socratic pedagogy that is intellectually demanding while also, um, you know, very much focused on developing the strengths of the child. Okay, and that makes sense. For a quick version, yeah. So, okay, so before we get into the reasons why you think that this is better, maybe you can describe in what you see in public education as of what's going on at the moment, the way the methods that they're teaching in. Sure, and the short version is I regard public education most of the time as fraudulent, abusive and fraudulent. We'll, we'll go even farther. I think it might be appropriate maybe for 20% of students. When I'm felt feeling generous, I think maybe 20% of the students are doing okay, maybe 5%, depending on what kind of standards one has. But for most students, it's uh, a tragedy. And I'll focus especially on secondary education because that's where I have the most experience. So on the one hand, um, 
I was good in school at what I call memorize and forget tests. You know, before the test, you load up, get it in the short-term memory, spit it out in the test. You know, I was straight A student, so I'd get my A. And, you know, if I, do I remember anything from high school chemistry? You know, very, very little. The details of high school history, very little. Just one data point, you know, often people who complain about, say, the citizenry of the United States might say, we need to teach them X, Y, or Z. It turns out that um, the three branches of government is something that's been taught in American schools forever, both in middle school and high school, yet only about 23 can list the three branches of government. And this is not rocket science, you know? Um, and so for me, this is sort of uh, an illustration of how we go through all of this memorize and forget it, some students, most students want to learn as little as possible while getting the best grade as possible. So if they want to go to an elite university, they wheedle their way into an A. If they want to just, you know, make honor roll, they do whatever they can to get their B. If they want to stay eligible for sports, how can I get my C minus? You know, if they just want to get their credit, how can I get my D minus? Are they focused on learning? No. It's, you know, they say about the Soviet Union, they pretended to work and we pretended to pay them. Very similar thing in public education. It's a joke. Um, you know, there are a small percentage of students, somewhere between 5 and 20%, who are working hard, um, either because of their families, who they happen to be as individuals, and or, uh, you know, in order to do well in college. But that's a minority. And there's lots of data around this. Separately, so that's on the fraud side. On the abus abusive side, there was a study at Yale recently, last year, showed that 75% of American high school students are unhappy at school, 75%. And the Yale researchers are surprised. I'm like, have you not been to a public high school? Um, separately, a few years ago, Gallup did a poll and found that only 45% of high school students were even engaged in learning. And remember, this does not include the dropouts who are no longer there at all. Um, but you know, the majority of high school students are not really engaged in learning. Anytime somebody comes up with a clever high school reform, you know, teach this or that, they need personal finance, they need to learn science, whatever. I said, think of Beavis and Butthead. You know, there's a whole bunch of Beavis and Butthead out there. And so while you're making all these fancy plans about education, it's, it's just a, a joke. And suicide, so there's good data showing that suicide rates increase during the school year and decrease holidays and summer for teens. One of the reasons they know that this is connected to school is the pattern, the seasonal pattern, vanishes at age 18. Basically, once kids are no longer forced into compulsory high school, they no longer have bursts of suicide. You know, I, I, I would like to see, you know, a mama bear revolution like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, where, you know, drunk driving used to be socially acceptable. Now it's not. I think teen suicide due to high school is absolutely unacceptable. And I can't believe that moms and dads are putting up with this. So I could go on and on, but it's ineffective and fraudulent and it's abusive and harmful is the short critique. Well, I'm, I agree with all of that. I can probably come up with about 50 other things. I think you and I could probably do an entire episode about the failures of school. Now, I don't want to make the entire episode about that. However, I do want to get your opinion on not just public schools, but a lot of times I have people who are like, well, my kid is not in the public school, they're in a private school, they're in their charter school or international school or some other type of alternative. Do you have opinions about those types of different platforms or programs? 
Sure. So first of all, um, you know, I used to think there was one right way to ed educate. The more time I've spent in education, if I had 10 children, I could imagine 10 children should go to 10 different schools. Um, you know, and, and just going back to food, when people ask, you know, is this or that school better? I'm like, well, what's the best kind of food? Well, you know, is it, you know, elite Gourmet cuisine? Is it, you know, the local Mexican place? Is it, you know, 7-Eleven for a snack? Is it, you know, bake your own food? You know, think of how diverse uh, our culinary options are. You know, it's just extraordinary. And then you think, okay, which education option? Are you insane? Um, an analogy I like to use is, you know, Imelda Marcos, for those of us old enough to remember her, she had 4,000 pairs of shoes. Um, we should have more than 4,000 uh you know, kinds of schooling, because of course, our brains are a lot more different than our the footwear people wear. So, you know, first, I just want to blast people's minds open with, hello, we should have lots of different options. Beyond that, the fact is, there's a whole literature on how there's a grammar of schooling, and most schools around the world, public and private, that includes things such as there are grades, there's a third grade, a fourth grade, a seventh grade, there's subjects, there's history, there's math, there's science. Um, one is expected to take tests at the end and so forth. All of this grammar of schooling, I believe, narrowly constrains human possibility. And to give you a couple of examples, one is consider something as simple as mastery learning. So at one of my schools, I had students doing individual self-paced Khan Academy math and one student completed four years of math in one year. Think, hey, if a kid can cover four years of math in one year, they should. In most public and private schools, the system doesn't really allow that. You know, they're expected to take seventh grade math and get precisely one credit for seventh grade math. And I've seen kids who are advanced who were forced to slow down and wait for the system. So something as simple and obvious as competency-based learning, you know, there are some hacks where some public and private schools do a little bit of it, but already when you have to hack the system in order to get competency-based learning, like is this insane or what? Very differently is something that, you know, you mentioned in the introduction, creativity and innovation. I think it's not an accident that many of the great entrepreneurs are high school and college dropouts. Branson is a high school dropout. There's whole literature on dyslexics and entrepreneurship. Many of the entrepreneurs who are dyslexic hated school, did poorly in school. Of course, at the college level, uh, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, John Mackey, Michael Dell, or maybe Michael Dell finished. But, you know, the fact is a lot of these guys were college dropouts because at some point you realize it's irrelevant. Peter Thiel famously funded the Thiel Fellows, um, 100,000 for two years to drop out of school and actually build a project. So for me, once one realizes, realizes that the world is actually about value creation and you want your kids to be value creators, that involves kind of creative and entrepreneurial thinking. And most school is top down what's the right answer it's at best orthogonal to creative and entrepreneurial thinking. And because it takes so much of their time, it typically um, reduces their ability to become creative and entrepreneurial. You know, John Taylor Gatto, twice named New York State Teacher of the Year. One of my heroes who I absolutely adore his books. He's wonderful. My short version of Gatto is that schooling is 12 years of training in how to be passive and how to be dependent. And so you think about that. Do we want our children, either our as individual parents or ours as society, do we want to train passive and dependent human beings in a world where basically the only future as a professional is to be creative and entrepreneurial in the 21st century? Um, so yeah, and then beyond that, one other problem is that the only thing that's rewarded are things that are 
fit into the grammar of schooling. So within the grammar of schooling, a teacher can respect a child for being kind or generous or wise or insightful, um, but the system, qua system, does not reward that. So insofar as we care about diverse human virtues, different kinds of excellences, um, the system absolutely penalizes that. So again, I could go on and on, but for me, uh, I'm most excited about those people who see that creative and entrepreneurial passions, following one's passions, becoming excellent in what one does is way more than important than jumping through the hoops of schooling. Well, I definitely agree with you. And to expand on your point about what John Taylor Gatto says and my own perspective on this is that school is really to create permanent children. Like, I think that they want you to be dependent and they want you to go out there and consume and come home and just watch Netflix and that's it. That's your entire life. I feel like that there's so much specialization that a lot of people might be able to build a nuclear reactor, but they can't tie their shoes. You know, they can't do the dishes. They can't, they can't take care of themselves. They can't have meaningful relationships with other human beings and converse and have human interaction, but they can do these really specialized skill to a really in-depth level. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense to me. I want to be able to, you know, take care of myself. As a libertarian, personal responsibility is one of the most important things, one of my tenements that I believe in. And side note also, going back to your, your comment about Khan Academy, I remember going through Khan Academy when I was like 29 or 30 because I had a desire, I was, I've been really into finance for a very, very long time, and I needed an upgrade on my math skills. So I went through and did three, four months of advanced calculus on Khan Academy through videos working through it at my own time period. And I mean, my problems with school, why I dropped out of school, is I have a form of dyslexia. And the education systems that work there didn't work for me. So there's clearly, like, I don't think anyone who would ever listen to my, my show or have a conversation with me think that I was quote-unquote stupid, but I went to a special school for three years. I dropped out of school. The programs did not work for me, but I can go on and do advanced calculus in my own time for shits and giggles. Like, I mean, because I want to, but because I didn't have the desire of learning beat out of me as a child, I actually get excited about those types of things. Do you know what I mean? Huge, huge. So two big directions I want to reference on that. First, the infantilization, the extent to which schooling infantilizes people. Immensely tragic. So I'm very interested in how in, you know, Paleolithic humans and hunter-gatherer tribes and even in indigenous cultures today, at the age of 12 or 13, you're expected to go off and take on adult level responsibilities. You're supposed to go hunt your first deer or whatever. And that sense of responsibility, and after that point taking a role in the community, I think that's absolutely key to adolescent health and well-being. So first, I think this infantilization where, you know, strong, healthy young people at the ages of 12, 13, 14, 15 are expected to sit under fluorescent lights and do as they're told all day, every day, is damaging. Um, and I actually have written on this. I have an article on um, evolutionary mismatch, how adolescent dysfunction is caused match between how we evolved and the circumstances today, including mental illness and substance abuse. I think we have an epidemic of mental illness and substance abuse among adolescents in no small part because of this mismatch. It's like you know, getting fat because we eat too many sugars and fats. We put kids into this unnatural environment and it's destroying them. You know, the suicide is just the tip of the iceberg, sadly. Um, and there's a lot of evidence that as uh, people modernize, 
they have more of not only the lifestyle diet issues, you know, the fat and so forth, but also these uh, mental conditions. And so I think it's, there's a very strong case there. Separately, I'm a big fan of, um, you know, giving adolescents responsibility. For, so in my schools, one of our goals, every student from the age of, you know, when they come into our school is expected to have a personal project and that personal project at some point is expected to be adult level in quality. So for instance, I've had a student who did a training video for Kaiser Permanente that's actually used by them. I had a student who did the website for an American Idol finalist. I had a student who did a three-day music festival where bands from around the world flew in. He had an $80,000 budget, three-day festival, you know. So the whole idea is, yeah, teenagers have this incredible capacity and we should expect them to perform at that level. And if they're doing that, then they don't have all of this dysfunction. You know, If they're actually doing adult level responsibility, they're amazing people. One other quick antidote on that before I go back to the, um, you know, the learning differences issue. Have you heard of the Abernathy twins at all? Well, not twins, Abernathy brothers? No, tell me. So this is a little tiny bit of history, but um, I think this is in 1910, a 10-year-old brother a 10-year-old boy and his six-year-old brother rode on horseback, horseback alone from Oklahoma to New York City. And when you think of how protective parents are today, I don't know, <laughs> how old are your kids? <laughs> I, got, I have uh, almost five years old. Hey, so next year, is yeah. he ready to go horseback riding across the country? <laughs> yeah, my little girl, maybe not. Maybe we give her a little bit more time, but yeah. But, you know, just in terms of shock value, and it turns out the father of these boys was a cowboy uh, who started, you know, riding herds of cattle at the age of 12 from Texas up to Montana. And I hadn't realized it, but even, even the term cowboy literally meant boy. A lot of the cowboys were literally boys. And so the, the sort of level of responsibility that young people used to have is absolutely mind-boggling and from that perspective when you think of how we infantilize them it's just every part of me screams do not so you don't have to send your you know five-year-old daughter across the country but still you can sort of see maybe give them a little bit more responsibility kind of thing okay we're going to take like a quick 10 second break so what I want everyone to do right now is if you are a fan of this show, I want you to share it with one friend. That's it. That's all I need you to do. I need you to pause the episode right now. Go out there. Go on Facebook. Go on Twitter. Go on your email. And I want you to share this episode or maybe your favorite episode with a really good friend of yours. Because it's no secret that the world we're going through some pretty tough times right now. And what I want to do is try to be a voice of solution, a voice of reason that is out there to be able to help people. And I honestly believe that moving overseas and having a bit of adventure and having a bit of passion back in your life and moving to a safe, peaceful country is a real opportunity for people. So please, 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 if you guys can just do one thing for me today, I want you to share this episode or your favorite episode with a friend right now. I really appreciate it. We actually grow the more the episodes are shared. We need to get these things out here because what I think is that we're all building a really strong community together. So hopefully you will take this, you'll share it with your friends, and get a lot of value from it. Thank you so much. Okay, let's jump back into the interview. Absolutely. I mean, I'm watching a program right now on Netflix called uh, Bolivar. It's about, it's a mini series basically on Netflix and I'm 
Spanish is my second language. I'm learning Spanish right now, which all my listeners know. I actively study Spanish, so I'm watching these programs in Spanish with Spanish subtitles. It's basically the 60-part mini-series. It's not really mini. And um, this man at 17 years old, well, first of all, his mother dies at a very young age. This is all historical. Um, in Venezuela, he works not with traditional schools. This is 200 years ago. Works strictly with mentors. Um, takes a ship to Spain, spends two or three years in Spain working with some of the best mentors, re is returning now to, uh, to South America and is going to liberate half of the content, half of the continent from the Spaniards. And I mean, becomes a general, I mean, and he started this thing as a teenager. And I'm watching this, and like he's, right now he's getting married at 17 years old, I'm like, Oh my God, like that's unbelievable. I started traveling at like 16, 17 years old internationally, but I swear I do, I do know people who are like 29, 30 years old, still in school and cannot cook themselves dinner, cannot wash the dishes, can't be trusted to do anything. And I'm like, this is unbelievable. Yeah, and, and again, with real life, um, and, and so it sounds like you've lived such a life that uh, I don't need to sell you on the odd idea of autodidacticism and of personal responsibility. And basically, yeah, if we expect teenagers, you know, at the age of 12 or 13 to start acting like a grown up and taking ownership over their own learning, a big theme for me is I want them to own their own learning. And, you know, I'll coach them. Hey, if you want to go into Harvard or MIT, you need these kind of test scores. If you want to go to film school, they don't care about test scores at all. This is what you need to be. You know, if you want to be Clint's great example, if you want to be a digital marketer, you can start this now. You know, any 13-year-old could become a, a digital marketer and start making good money. You know, so I, I do. One thing that I like to remind people or fans of unschooling of is I think successful unschooling involves coaching young people about their options. It doesn't mean telling them what to do, but um, sometimes there are. I know I know adolescent boys who spend all the time on video games. I'm like, hey, dude, you want to be in your mother's basement at 30 playing video games, or do you actually want to achieve something? And I think once achievement is an option, most young people do. They want to contribute. They want to achieve. You know, I, I know another homeschooling family where their son started flying around the world at yeah, 15, 16 and something. I think that's incredibly powering. So uh, very much that sort of level of let's take responsibility when young and let's try things and fail. And it's, as adults, as educators or parents, we want to make sure it's safe. So, you know, we have to figure that out. Um, although, by the way, I did have, I once worked with a very successful entrepreneur who claimed that the ideal education would be to drop a kid off in a random city and see if uh, he or she could make it to Destination X. It's kind of funny that you say that because, I mean, I get interviewed on many other shows and I joke, half joke as well, that like literally I have so much self-confidence because I know for a fact that you could literally drop me in any country in any different like uh, continent speaking different languages, and by the end of the day, I would have a roof over my head, a full belly, a couple of friends, and probably a glass of wine or a pint of beer. I mean, I'd be okay. I thrive in an environment like that. And I know I can do that because, I mean, I've gone, traveled all over Africa. I've traveled all over the Middle East and Asia. I hitchhiked through Central and South America when I was like 19 or 20 years old for 18 months. I mean, back 20 years ago where we didn't have internet like we have today. And I mean, I was able to do all of those things as a teenager and in my early 20s. I mean, that builds self-confidence, that builds self-reliance and responsibility. I mean, 
I'm always encouraging people to go out there and experience things for themselves because that's how you're going to actually learn. And instead of like you were mentioning earlier on this rote memorization where you put something in your short-term memory and then forget it immediately, really, what is the value of that going to be? But if you can actually learn skills like how to take care of yourself and really internalize these types of things and see different cultures, see different environments and how people interact, I mean, for me, that's super valuable. Have you written at all about your uh, education and upbringing? Do you have like an essay or book version? I don't have an essay, but I mean, I publish about 100,000 words a month. So between my magazine, my blog, uh, my podcast, um, my seven newsletters, and about everything else I do. But yeah, everybody knows um, who's listening to this. I'm like very full on. <laughs> so there's, well, there's probably a lot out there on, on my educational uh, upbringing and opinions, I would say. Well, I'm going I'm to get you on some other podcasts in the education world because I, I live in this, and of course it's all real, but one of the things that's delaying change, I would say, is most people still believe in the system. And so, you know, some of us realize the system, I, I say school is bullshit. It's just, it's again, fraudulent and abusive, but most people believe in it. And it's sort of like this, um, you know, ritualistic church that people still drop their kids off at school, expect something positive is going on and leave. Just on the okay, learning Okay, so let me pause you for a second. Do you think... Sure. That that statement is true even after 2020? Or do you think that statement is true only pre-2020? Well, we've, we've made a lot of progress. So Gallup says we've gone from 5% homeschooling to 10% homeschooling. So I, I do think that the, probably the best part of 2020 is permanent uh, disillusionment with school. How deep that has it gone, we don't know, but that's one of the reasons I launched Expanse Online is like, finally, people are seeing that this system is a joke and more people are gonna be ready to jump off and do something something different. So I think um, we're beginning to see, we're going to see the beginning of the end. That's, that's the way I would see it. In 20 years, um, you know, my vision for public schools is basically like the post office. Still exists, still expensive, but you know, for me, a post office is junk mail, a subsidized junk mail in my bail, mailbox, just throw it in the garbage. All our communications are yeah, electronic or we use FedEx, UPS and so forth. So I think mm -hmm. in 20 years, um, there'll still be expensive public schools that kind of you know, waste people's time, but 90% of people will be learning elsewhere. So when you have people come to you and I mean, okay, so if, let me stop and then start again. Um, what we'll be doing with my daughter is we'll be unschooling her or a form of unschooling called, well, affectionately known as world schooling. We will educate her as we travel the world, which fits into our lifestyle. I think that the child should fit into our lifestyle, not our, us fit into the child's lifestyle. Um, and our perspective will be that as we work with our daughter and we do projects or we have ideas and discussions, you know, we're going to take it a step further so that, say, for example, we're studying history and we're studying Italian history. Well, maybe on the side, we'll also cook Italian food at dinner time, And then maybe we'll spend some time learning Italian. And then we'll look at different cultural aspects and the art from this country. And we'll make it a big project. And then, well, I'm an entrepreneur. I own my own business. Let's go to Italy for three months. Why not? You know, and then take her in that environment and introduce her to people and everything like that. So this is one of the things that I would love to see more expats being able to do is taking their kids with them. And instead of just going from a regular um, public school to now a international school in a foreign country, but still being locked into that, being able to take their kids 
uh, overseas. Now, I say all of that because as you're doing online education, you're doing something not, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but not so much on the unschooling or world schooling side. It's more of a homeschooling, but with a, a set curriculum, but the curriculum is more in the Socratic thought, which is for open discussion. First, do I have that correct or not? So let's add some nuance. First of all, yeah. um, because then I'm going to continue because I want to. Yeah. Yeah, I, first, I, I feel as if we really need terms between schooling and unschooling, because I'm very much against schooling. But there are some unschoolers who are kind of dogmatic about, I never impose my will on my child. Whereas, you know, what you're sounding, doing sounds very intentional. That is, uh, you know, you, you, I think you just gave a beautiful description of the intentionality behind that. And it goes back to my kind of coaching students that um, I want to, Maria Montessori talked about follow the child. And Maria Montessori was very attentive to the environment that, um, you know, she curated an environment. That's what the Montessori classroom is. Forget the details of Montessori. And I would say you are curating an environment within which your child has freedom. And so I would say that's very much I'm Montessori to that extent that um, we curate an environment within which a child has freedom. So we do have a conversation, but if we're talking about Frederick Douglass or Plato or whatever, I'm not going to tell you what to think. You're not going to tell me what to think. We have a, an authentic conversation just like this. Again, kids love to talk. People love to talk. And then, you know, it's useful to learn to write. So we encourage students to write, but we don't tell them what to write about. We get them thinking, talking, writing a lot. And voila, SAT scores, SAT verbal scores go way up. Um, they learn how to write really well. You know, I explain to kids it's really useful. But it's very much at their own pace in their own way. So to that extent, sort of unschooling flavored a little bit. The other thing is projects. Every I mentioned every student has a personal project. So, you know, you do whatever project you want to do. We're coaching you in terms of, hey, if you want your project to get into MIT, this is what it looks like. If you want your project to get into film school, that's what it needs to look like. But it's your project, your motivation. You know, I mentioned earlier projects. So to that extent, there's no curriculum forced on the students. We do right now have a math and science program that we expect students to do. If a student, especially in high school, wants to opt out of math and science, I've done that. So I had a student who said, look, um, I'm a creative, and I don't want to do any more math and science. We said, OK, no problem, as long as the parents are on board with that. So I would say radical personalization. What the Socratic and projects do is they provide kind of a coherent spine. It gives us community. I would say a challenge with unschooling as children get into adolescence is they, teens want to be around teens. You know, they crave teen interaction. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, we're providing kind of a teen community that's more structured than unschooling and yet provides a lot of personalization. Mm -hmm. I'm really trying to create this space between the schooling and the unschooling in a way that makes sense and is high performance, if that makes well, this sense. Is, I'm super interested to get a lot of your opinions on the things that I think and, you know, my research into education. And, you know, I've read a thousand books, but I'm certainly no expert like you. I haven't built my career on it. Um, I think that as a parent's responsibility, the things that we do need to work with our child on, reading, writing, and spelling, and basic arithmetic. I think that those two things, as long as they have the foundational work, I mean, they can go on there and do anything they want. We really believe in interest-based learning. So at the moment, my daughter is super into dance. I mean, like I said, she's only five years old, so I mean, I'm not expecting this is going to, like if she wants to go on and be a professional dancer, that's amazing. I mean. I'm super supportive. If she wants to dance for eight hours a day, fantastic. As long as she knows how to read, write, and spell and do basic arithmetic, I mean, she'll be able to teach herself everything else. Now, what goes with that 
is I do believe in compassion. I do believe in understanding. I do believe in communication. Um, my wife is from mainland China, so we do teach my daughter Chinese as her second language. Actually, she, technically she has two first languages, English and Chinese, and her Spanish is her third language, which we're working on right now. Because when I look into the future, I see that a lot of the programs, a lot of the things that are being taught in schools right now will have no application going forwards. The landscape is changing so quickly in the job market and in the entrepreneurial space that things right now won't even exist when my daughter enters the workforce. However, saying all of that, communication and compassion and relationship building, I think will be important in five years, in 10 years, in a thousand years. I don't think that those will ever be human skills that go out of fashion or will not be necessary to live a honest and ethical and productive life. Does that make sense? Totally on board, 100% agree. So those are kind of the things that I think about when I'm trying to design education for my daughter. And that's why I say like, it's kind of unschooling, but then we kind of call it world schooling, but then there's other people that do world schooling, but it's interest-based learning and I mean, do we have all the answers? Certainly not. I mean, I'm a first time father. We're trying to figure everything out and I wouldn't ever tell people like I have the right way and everything will be based on what she has. And yes, I'll make mistakes, but I mean. So another do. metaphor, again, this is why schooling and unschooling are inadequate, uh, it's an inadequate binary. Um, a term, the way we're describing our high school program right now is talent development accelerators. And so the idea is we're talent development coaches and we wanna help whatever your child's, I, I'm a great believer as parents and as educators, our job is to figure out the child's genius and blow it up. And it's not like it's unilateral, obviously the child is exploring as well, but we have a lot more experience in terms of different kinds of skills and abilities that are useful in the real world. And so our focus is really on helping the child become amazing. And part of that coaching is for some careers, it is useful to go to college. And some for some careers, it's useful to go to elite colleges if you can. Um, for other careers, college is absolutely and perfectly irrelevant. And so part of the expertise I would say I bring as a coach to children is, um, look, let's figure out who you are, what you wanna do, how you wanna do it, and even talk about trade-offs. Well, you know, suppose you have a high verbal SAT, but a low math SAT. Well, this gives you this range of colleges. If you want to work and crank up your math SAT, that gives you that range of colleges. I'm not telling you what you should do, but because I have certain expertise and experience, I'm giving you an informed roadmap, basically. And so I, I see that as a role. And again, it's different from completely passive unschooling. Um, just a bit on the college admissions, because I think fear and anxiety around college admissions drives a lot of conventionality mm -hmm. in high okay, school. Okay, so before we get into that, give me a couple of examples of times, and, and I already have some in my mind, but I want to hear you say it, uh, career paths where it would be appropriate to go to college, career paths where it would be appropriate to go to Ivy League best of the best colleges, and then examples where college is really not the best place if that's your path in life. Sure, sure. Well, just, you know, in the U.S., it's healthcare is so regulated that to be in the healthcare system, you know, you have to have a license. You know, you can't be a doctor or a nurse, um, you know, or even a dental therapist or dental hygienist without a legal credential. And so anytime you're dealing with a legal system that requires certain kinds of credentials at accredited institutions, hey, that's what you got to do. 
Um, you know, I am, by the way, interested in like, new jurisdictions in part so we can escape that, you know, monoculture of uh, healthcare. But that's the reality. Um, in terms of elite institutions, if you want to be, you know, if you want to be a professor, if you want to be a professional mathematician or a theoretical physicist, you could theoretically do it. Freeman Dyson didn't have a PhD, but um, the fact is to be around other elite mathematicians and physicists really, really helps. And to get recommendation letters from elite mathematicians and physicists really, really helps. Could you do it at a state university? Sometimes for sure. But I would say it's just a consideration. Part of it is there are certain, you know, McKinsey, if you want to be a consultant, um, it helps to graduate from an elite institution. So some of this is, uh, let's look at where um, credentials like this are useful and who are you and what you want to do. On the don't need any kind of university, I'm a big fan of sales. You know, intellectuals dismiss sales. It turns out that the world revolves around sales, um, you know, and marketing. And so in order, in terms of sales and marketing, it's 100% performance-based. In general, you don't need any credentials at all. That's why, yeah, a young kid could be a digital marketer or real estate, you know? Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people make a good living as real estate salespeople. You get into commercial real estate, you can make really big money, yep. and you don't need any credentials at all. Yeah, I had to pause you there because I think that that is the first question that people often ask. I think that a lot of times people get confused. I mean, I would add to that list any type of entrepreneurial venture. I mean... Learning how to build a business from somebody who's never built a business, has never run a business or managed a business, I mean, and only studied about it in textbooks, I mean, that seems insane to me. I mean, I studied to be an entrepreneur. I did it by reading several thousand books from people who had actually done things, like in the real world, and then went out there and did courses with them or interviewed them or met them or joined their mastermind. And then I asked them questions and then I replicated what they did. You know, real people doing real things. I mean, I think that's a much better way to learn so, no, big time. Skills. No, I com completely agree. So entrepreneurial and creative for sure. And some ways they added sales because people ignore and dismiss it, but yeah. absolutely for any entrepreneurial or creative career. Um, with creatives, it's all about, you know, my wife is a consumer products company and we hire mm -hmm. creatives a lot. And with creatives, it's all about performance. You know, mm -hmm. can, they, can they produce really high quality stuff that works in the marketplace? So mm -hmm. entrepreneurship, creative, sales, categories where you don't need any credentials at all. It's all performance-based. Okay, so let's continue our conversation about college admission then, because I think that a lot of people have fear points or sticking points when they think about this. Yeah, big time. I would say that fear and anxiety around college admissions drives conventional high school education. A couple of data points. First, only 3% of American college high school students go to competitive colleges. Um, so the, a lot of the anxiety around college admissions is really about a tiny percentage. And most people, you know, the fact is thousands, maybe hundreds of liberal arts colleges are in financial difficulty. They're desperate for students. Mm -hmm. So I hate to put it that way, but 
is it hard to get into college? No, you know, community college will take anybody. Most state schools will take anybody. And increasingly, a lot of liberal arts colleges will take a warm body. Um, so, you know, forget the anxiety. Can you get into college? Yes, you can get into college. Um, then it's a matter of what kind and why. It turns out that certainly private schools, private universities don't care at all about traditional credentials. So I'll give you one extreme case. Laura Deming was a student who was unschooled entirely. At the age of 12, she wrote a letter to a, an anti-aging researcher at UCSF, asked if she could work in her lab. Um, she was great at sales and persuasion. So at 12 years old, she was working in this lab. Um, at 14, she applied to MIT. At 15, she got into MIT. Um, and then at 16, she dropped out to accept a Teal Fellowship. By the time she's 19, she's an anti-aging VC in Silicon Valley. Last year, I think she produced something like 10% of the COVID tests in the US. She's maybe 26 now. You know, so a spectacular career. Her father's a friend of mine, John Deming. I looked at her transcript to get into MIT, no courses. Um, she had a list of the books she'd read, um, which, you know, a lot of classic, serious books. She'd uh, audited a few math and science courses at universities. And this world-class researcher had written her a glowing recommendation letter. You know, basically, MIT doesn't care if you have 24 high school credits. Different example going in a different direction. Um, really, the great universities, they want amazing people. Um, to some extent, they're talent scouts. They also want wealthy people. But if you're talented and not wealthy enough, they want you. When I went to Harvard, the kid with the lowest SAT scores in my freshman class had been elected mayor of a small town in Michigan at the age of 18. If you can get that done, they don't care about your SAT scores. Um, I know another kid who just got into Harvard who's a, a successful actor on an HBO show. You know, he had gone to 100 odd auditions before he got his first commercial and gradually built up career for, career for himself. Um, in general, People who do amazing projects are interesting. And just think of it. I've been on scholarship committees where I read 400 applications on a Saturday morning. And most of them are GPA, student council, varsity sports, orchestra, volunteer work, blah, 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 blah. And then you get to this kid who dropped out of high school and spent a year in a Tibetan monastery. Wow, if nothing else, you know, you're bored silly. You wake up and pay attention to that kid. So um, Cal Newport is a wonderful author. He has a book called How to Be a High School Superstar. And it's really do something that's amazing and unexpected. And so the fact is high school credits don't matter. Um, I recommend that students who wanna go to an elite university, if that's your thing, um, do a couple of AP courses or IB courses. It's really just the university that level of work, academic work, but it doesn't need to be 15 APs, it can be three. Um, SAT, and just to talk about SAT a bit, so I, my mom's high school dropout, my dad was an elevator repairman, I come from a completely uneducated household. I think the best part about my education is I lived in northern Minnesota with bad TV reception, and as a consequence, I became a reader. I was reading a 200-page book every night at the age of 11. And so for me, SAT, it's basically reading. If, if you have a kid who's reading a lot of diverse, interesting, difficult material, you know, it's worth practicing a few times. But one of the reasons we have great SAT scores is we just have kids read and think and talk about difficult material. So SAT verbal is actually not a big deal if you are a serious reader. SAT math takes a little practice, but it's, you know, I think it's worthwhile practice if that's what you want. And if you're motivated to do it, again, I, I mentioned the anecdote of kids with low SAT math, but high SAT verbal, you know, basically I said, 
you know, if you're motivated, crank up your SAT math scores. They work with an SAT math coach for a few months and gain 100, 150 points, voila. So I, I, I encourage families and students to be completely practical about this. If you want to crank up your SAT scores, do it. Start practicing when you're young. If you have four years to crank up SAT scores, it is not hard. Um, you know, a couple of AP score tests percent of your time for projects. And so that when you can do these amazing projects that are all the kinds of things you know, we were talking about earlier, and it's real world. So be an entrepreneur, be a software developer, be a novelist, be a digital marketer, you know, do something amazing. And you can spend maybe 20% of your time on conventional academics and still get into elite universities. So before we continue on, and we, we've, I've heard you mentioned Harvard a couple of times, what's your opinion on Harvard going completely digital during COVID? And I don't know if you saw the reports that they're still charging their students something like $50,000 a semester for a completely online program. Well, I think for some time, the real value of universities has been the social life. In some ways, uh, it's a party. You know, and I'm not going to pick on Harvard. They're probably not as good a party as a lot of places. But the whole thing with COVID is we see that actual education is a tiny part. MIT Open Courseware, and there are actually Harvard courses as well. You can take Harvard or MIT or many elite courses online for next to nothing. For a few hundred dollars a year, you could basically take an academic workload at an Ivy League university. So what do you get by being there? Uh, well, you get the social life and you get the relationships. I actually know somebody who went to Harvard Business School who said, I didn't learn anything there, but it was the best fraternity on earth. Because you know, you go on and all your so you know fraternity brothers school alums, they're incredibly wealthy and well-connected. And so I think those relationships, and I, a little bit facetious on the party side, but it's a combination of relationships that have real-world value um, and, yeah, socializing and having fun. Um, you know, I, I know somebody who was uh, commenting that, yeah, Ivy League um, bills are expensive, but if you compare it to, say, Bonnaroo or, you know, any music festival, on a per hour basis, it's not bad. So, you know, as long as people know transparently, the education is a, the actual learning part of the education is a tiny part of the bundle. And the bundle includes this fraternity networking thing, and it includes this party dating thing. Okay, how much am I going to pay for my kid to have the party dating experience um, and develop some relationships? But so then my point is, though, that all the programs have gone online now. So are they having these parties? Are they, you know, I mean, you're spending so, an incredible you know, amount no, of money. I mean, like, take that for me. It's a it joke. Just seems, yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Like, it, it just it's seems a, so ridiculous. silly. Spend $50,000 a semester, $100,000 a year. I'd rather give that as seed capital to my kid and be like, here, go and blow it and build a business. And, you know, if you make something great, if you don't, then, I mean, I'm sure you're going to learn something. Yeah, no, I, I think our universities, you know, we've talked about K-12, but I think our universities are a disaster. And so I actually get, get great satisfaction when I see parents and students suing. I think Georgetown was sued by some parents because they paid 60,000 bucks and they get these virtual courses this year. Um, you know, I, I think we, we need a lot of creative, creative destruction at the post-secondary level as well, because it's, it's all fraudulent most of because the time. It's interesting because I'm such a big fan of online education. However, I find that this is abusive. I mean, it just, well, you know, you, you sign up for something like this. They charge you a million dollars. And I mean, what they're providing, I mean, you can get for peanuts somewhere else. I mean, I agree with you. The value is the personal relationships you're going to make at a place like that. Now, you take away the personal relationships. What right, not right, I mean, like, I'm a libertarian, you can do whatever you want as long as it's not harming someone. But I guess it's, 
how are people still falling for this? Like, for me, it's not the right value. Right. Uh, you know, in some cases, you can literally take the same course for through one of these um, MOOCs for maybe 300 bucks that and you could bundle together basically a year at Harvard, MIT for 1200 bucks instead of paying 50, 60,000. It's, it's ridiculous. Unbelievable. OK, continuing on. Um, I would like to hear your opinion or the questions that you get by building and running online schools about the quote unquote socialization. Because I think socialization is to uh, online education or homeschooling as roads are to libertarians. I mean, it's the first thing that always comes out of someone's mouth when I tell them that I'm going to take responsibility for my daughter's education. So first I'll do it with respect to homeschooling. Um, you know, having run a lot of schools over the years, and very often I get kids coming into a high school who've been homeschooled up to high school, I would say on balance they are more mature, more responsible, much better and healthier socialized than regular kids. So the whole socialization thing, I think there is nothing worse than sending your kid to a large public middle school. If you want your kid to be bullied and abused and intimidated and taught to hate learning, send them to public middle school. You know, you call that socialization? You know, sometimes I regard secondary school as the most boring and cruel years of my life. As an adult, I am never bored. And if some them. Whereas in secondary school, you know, I remember watching the second hand for hours and kids are mean all the time. I always say the best way to get school choice would be in public school restrooms, um, cafeterias and in the parking lot where kids are just treating each other like crap all the time. So yeah, in terms of socialization, absolutely homeschool. Keep them away from you know, those hell holes. You know, the virtual thing, one of the, one of the things we specialize in is human interaction. So I actually prefer face-to-face -face interaction. It'd be really fun you know, to be there in Panama with you having a beer or whatever. But um, all of our classes are highly interactive. So if you look at some virtual education, I know one virtual school, it's basically a PDF online. And so how boring is that to read? You know, again, it's not even interesting stuff. Textbooks, history mm -hmm. textbooks make history boring like you wouldn't yeah. believe. One of the so, most fascinating, incredible subjects in the entire world. Just go listen to uh, Hardcore History and that podcast program if you want to see how exciting history can be. I mean, yeah, I can't imagine anything more boring than reading just a textbook on my screen. Yeah, a quick side anecdote in this. Um, in, when my son was in fourth grade, we unschooled him because he was in a public school. We went to the lunchroom. We saw this as a disaster, pulled him out. It was the best school, best public school in Broward County where I was living at the time. Um, but he was reading um, history, the cartoon history of the universe, which is actually wonderful. And I compared that to his fourth grade history textbook. And I thought, um, Gonick's Cartoon History of the Universe has deeper, richer, more intelligent history than the textbook. He read this in three days for fun instead of wasting a year doing yeah, stupid memorize and forget crap. So totally. Um, that, that rant. So what was I supposed to be? I, I forgot what I was supposed to be answering. I don't know, but I love the rants. Keep, keep the rants coming. The, rant, the rants are very welcome. So we're talking about the socialization and your experiences by running um, online schools and how you specialize in this. Yeah, and interaction. And so, yeah, most schools don't let kids interact. So our every morning we have half an hour of community, which is just hanging out and building community where we're not yet being serious and academic. We're just 
having fun hanging out. Okay, and so walk me, what, play games walk, and walk me through how that looks. Like, paint me a picture how you are physically doing that online in a digital space. So everybody shows up at, we start, so our day is 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Central. I'm based in Austin. And at 10 a.m., the kids all get on their Zoom. So it's totally Zoom. Okay, just so it's Zoom-based. Okay. Yeah, but for half an hour, just kind of hang on, hang hang out and, you know, have fun. The, the guide, we call them guides rather than teachers, but the guide, you know, facilitates the interactions and talks about, actually, it sounds a lot like what you're doing in terms of interesting things. You know, one role an adult can play is they can inject interesting things in to the conversation, whether it's current events or culture or geography or just fun, strange facts. Um, you know, curiosity. How do you, we stimulate curiosity? By exposing kids to cool, random stuff. And kids love talking about cool, random stuff. Um, so, you so know, do we, I, hence why I have a podcast. There we go. There we go. That's why. <laughs> so, half an hour of that, and then we get into take a break, and then we get into a more serious Socratic discussion where we read and talk about something, but it could be, you know, philosophy, anthropology, poetry, literature, um, economics, political science, you know, all sorts of stuff. We read, think, and talk, then take a break, and people write on their own, and there's a sort of check-in. Sometimes we have them read their things together. Sometimes they review each other's stuff, but it's very much peer-to-peer -peer kind of thing. An hour for lunch. Um, encourage people to go outside. Sometimes we have exercises like go out and take a picture of a bird in your backyard or a plant in your backyard. You get kids both going out and then coming back and having fun with them going out and coming back. Then there's an hour of math and science and the math has some projects so they can do some projects either alone or in small groups. The science, we actually have lab experiments. So every kid, every family gets a kit in the mail where your kid would get, you know, the balloon and the vinegar and the baking soda or whatever to do all sorts of cool little fun experiments. And then sometimes they, you know, keep their computer on or doing the experiment in the kitchen and talking to their friends. Sometimes they turn it off and do the experiment and come back and then talk about the experiment. And then they, um, you know, have half an hour each week mentoring with an adult. So one-on-one -on -one mentoring with an adult. And then beyond that, it's, uh, we've got one day a week where it's creative projects. So we've got a creative curriculum, which starts with drawing, but ultimately goes to anime and creating your own YouTube channel where kids can create animated YouTube things. We've got Nobel Explorers, which is an international STEM boot camp where kids in the U.S. can do, say, a website or project management or a data analysis with kids in the Ukraine and France and Kenya. You know, again, actually online allows us to create this incredibly diverse, rich social experience. And most kids love it. And then, you know, on their own, you know, they they do other things. One of my schools, Minecraft was their social hangout. So evenings and weekends, you know, some of them were actually doing stuff in Minecraft, but mostly they were just using it as a social media playground and hanging out with each other. Um, <laughs> so I want to ask you some of the practical aspects here, because I want to, I really want to understand some of the details. So what, with the Zoom room, I mean, does it kind of just stay online all day? Is that like the the classroom? Or are they moving from one Zoom room to another? Just like in high school, I used to go to my locker and get my stuff and then walk to a class. Well, actually, probably I walked out to the parking lot to have a cigarette, but I mean, you know what I mean. <laughs> Yeah. So there are two lead guides. So there's a humanities guide and a STEM guide. And the humanities guide has a three hour, three hour block in the morning. And he can break it up based on, so we have pods of up to 15, no more, longer than 15. And the humanities guide can decide, you know, I said half an hour for a community, maybe some mornings after 15, 20 minutes, yeah, 
let's get on and get with the intellectual work. Other times, maybe something happened politically and we need to talk about it for 45 minutes. You know, so you can be flexible in that. And then break, in the break, yeah, they go off and they do their own thing, get a snack, uh, go outside and then come back. So basically the lead guide can punctuate that three hour period to kind of suit the dynamic of that particular group of students that morning. And, and same way with the STEM guide in the afternoon. So the STEM guide has them for two hours in the afternoon and she punctuates that with you know breaks and so forth. And so there, that's the basic structure. Then beyond things like that, the Nobel explorers and the art and the personal projects, the mentoring, those are separate, separately scheduled sorts of things. So basically you have a guide in the morning and a guide in the afternoon and that guide will have a room and the kids enter that room leave and enter, leave and enter, leave and enter. And yep. if they wanted to, they could stay the whole time and on their break, they could chit chat with their friends or they can go do their projects and then return to the group. Do I have that correct? That is, that is correct. And actually as a variation on that, instead of Zoom, we played with Gather which is a place where you can have breakout rooms and you know we can go, you can sort of see physically where we all walk over here and hang out and talk over there. We all walk over here and take, or we can go to different corners. So there's, there are a lot of cool pieces of software that allow us to um, vary that. Zoom is sort of our default technology, but we're playing around with other things. And the fact I is- I think Zoom kids... has breakout rooms as well. I'm not, I've never used them, but I've seen it on the settings. Yeah, we, we definitely use Zoom chat rooms, but what Gather does is you can sort of see a map. And so you can kind of see visually, oh, Mikel is walking over towards us and he's gonna, then all of a sudden you appear oh, wow. on the screen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we're playing around with stuff like that. Interesting. So I guess my other question about the practicalities of this, well, actually there's two, I've got two. This is really fascinating, sorry. I absolutely love talking about education and alternative ways of doing it. I mean, I've had lots of people on who we've talked about like homeschooling and world schooling, but I've never talked about these types of things. Okay, so first, is it the same kids who come every day to the same class with the same guide, or is it different kids all the time and different, or different guides every time, I guess it would be the same. Be the so so the, there's the core, kind of the, think of the core program as 15, the same 15 kids in pods in the humanities and in the STEM. The, the, the Nobel Explorers, that's, that's the international community where, uh, so that's a different grouping. And then the art is also a different grouping. So you kind of like, you have the, your homeroom, so to speak, and the homeroom does kind of the basic humanities and basic STEM, and they're together. And then there are these cool other activities, and those are different kids and different groupings. So, but then do, do the core group of 15, which actually does answer a third question, is how many um, kids are in one group? I mean, if I remember correctly, when I was in school, it was 32. So, I mean, we're already at half the size, so that's going to be double the amount of personal attention from the guide. So that's, first of all, amazing. Um, but if it's the same group of 15 kids, does the guide stay the same or on Monday so, is different than Tuesday is different than Wednesday or maybe it's... Yeah, no, the guide is the same for humanities all year and for STEM gotcha. all year. So again, two guides. The, the other thing about keeping those groups steady is um, something that I've spent a lot of time doing is actually cultivating healthy, positive norms of interaction. So, you know, we, you and I can have a conversation and it works, especially when I went to say to inner city classrooms, I would say my task is person A speaks, person B listens and responds. Um, you know, it sounds super simple, but there are lots of groups of kids where this is, you know, advanced, 
So we do a lot of coaching to make sure kids aren't insulting, attacking. Um, you know, in middle schoolers, part of that is appropriate, but we, we want to create a healthy environment. We actually do spend a lot of time coaching human interactions so that it's a positive experience. Just a quick hint on conversation, classroom conversations. If I say kids love to talk, but if a few kids are dominating or a few kids are insulting or something like that, it destroys it. Absolutely, kids hate class. And so a lot of times when people say, I hated classroom discussion, also projects, we have to coach projects as well. If you have dis, and you know, you've been in the world, if you have dysfunctional people to work with, it sucks. So uh, something that we're very focused on is making sure that the human interactions are very high quality. And I would say that's kind of our special sauce is making sure that this human interaction part is very high touch. Um, and if there are problems, you know, sometimes it can also almost become sort of a group therapy of, whoa, uh, this didn't work, what happened, what's going on, how can we, you know, totally address those sorts of issues. So focusing a lot on the EQ and all the emotions that go along with it, opposed to just the, did you get an A, did you get a B, which Absolutely. doesn't reflect any of those things. And that kind of touches back on the conversation before. I guess my only other follow-up question to this is, um, what about the age of the kids? Is Are all kids exactly the same age, or do you have kids who are different ages and at different steps along the path, you could say? No, that's a really great question. And first, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, mixed-aged groups and certainly Montessori is as well. Going back to sort of evolution, uh, we evolved so that peers were in many ways more influential than parents. And um, kids look to just slightly older peers. You, I think this is, you know, biological. Who, who are you going to compete with in terms of sex and status? It's not that 40-year-old over there. It's you know, people two or three years up or down, maybe four or five years. So definitely mixed age. Um, but that said, there are also developmental boundaries. So we kind of have high school level mixed age, middle school level mixed age, upper elementary mixed age, lower elementary mixed age. And one way to think about this is you know, as your kids get towards puberty, there are, there are changes in how they interact. And so cognitively, an eight-year-old may be able to totally be with a 13-year-old. But, you know, the kinds of jokes, eight-year-olds laugh at different jokes than a 13-year-old does. And so it just kind of a uh, mixed age group, but with some sensitivity to uh, a certain kind of range of maturity. And it really is more about maturity than anything else. No, I love that because I really do think that the segregation of ageism for children is massively damaging in an environment like school. I mean, you have, like my example, 32 kids running around. None of them know how to behave, and they learn how to behave from other kids who don't know how to behave. It's just a recipe for disaster. And my listeners have probably heard me use this example before, but my daughter, who's almost five, her best friend is like eight. She just turned eight. And they get along so well is unbelievable, but they both get different things out of the relationship. My daughter gets to look up to someone and is not such a huge age gap as in, you know, her parents or her grandparents. They can still play together and they're still on the same kind of mental, but I mean, she's, my, my daughter's friend is certainly quite a bit farther along. She's another almost four years older. And the older girl gets so much out of the relationship because she learns responsibility. Because we're constantly, okay, make sure you, you know, take care of her and don't let her do something silly and don't let her, like, so she, she is now put in responsible, in, she's now put to be responsible of another human being in a confined, or in a controlled environment. We're not saying go play in the streets, of course, but I mean, 
they both get something out of the relationship. And I think that is amazing. I mean, having it, it's ageism huge. is crazy. Yeah, well, I, I go, can go back. I see adolescent dysfunction is huge and it's caused by all of these various factors. Just going back to the, um, you know, in entrepreneurship and joking about the 40 year olds, um, if I, I've, I have a lot of entrepreneurial speakers come and talk to my kids. Um, and for a 15 year old, there's a huge difference between a 21 year old entrepreneur and a 40-year-old entrepreneur. You know, you can just see when the 21-year-old entrepreneur comes to speak, wow, it's sort of like a real human being. Yeah. 40-year-old, that's like my parents. Who is yeah, that? Yeah, for sure, for sure. It's funny, it's very funny. Amazing. Okay, so I know that you broke down for me the hours in a day, and I know that that's the, the real details, but maybe just at a 40,000-foot how many hours a day are you doing this? Is this still five days a week? Is this in the traditional, what we would think of as school uh, time frame layout? Great question. So for us, I'll kind of, with everything, because flexibility is the key, there's sort of a default and there is endless variation. So just going to the default, our default is designed to be consistent with kind of standard US. So um, it's basically September through May. You know, the nine months of the standard school year. And again, different regions in the US start earlier, start later. So we just kind of compromise. September through May is simple. Um, standard holidays off in the US, federal holidays. But beyond that, five days a week. And um, Wednesday is our different day. So we discovered that having five days that are pretty similar, the kids needed a break and the guides needed a break. So Monday and Tuesday, Thursday and Friday are the standard three hours of various humanities activities and breaks, and then two hours of STEM activities and breaks. Wednesday is when we have the um, creative block and the international STEM bootcamp block. And we also have special project block then, as well as students taking whatever other courses. So, you know, we don't as a school offer Japanese or, you know, accounting or whatever. So if a student wanted to do something like that, Wednesday is when they could take that. And we have, you know, there's an immense range of online courses. And so in many ways we're supporting students who want to pursue something like that. You know, we can assign credits and that kind of thing. I often prefer to get students focused on their own performance and their own goals. And then if they want credits, that's fine. But yeah, it's nine months, September through May, uh, five days a week with Wednesdays different. That said, we encourage students to not think of it as a school in the school year, but going back to the metaphor of talent development accelerator, um, this is, goes when I interview students, what do you love? So my job or our job as educators is to figure out your child's genius. And if your child's genius is to be a YouTube channel or an entrepreneur, um, hello, there's no summer, there's no weekend. You know, we all take breaks and go skiing or whatever, but um, the idea is we check in over the summer. So how's the project going? You know, if you want formal coaching, you, you need maybe to learn the digital marketing side of your entrepreneurial business, you need to code. You know, we see the child owning his or her own education involves getting serious about whatever it takes to achieve whatever goals the child sets. And we want to encourage ambitious goals. So. You know, I would say for students who really get this far, you know, they can as they want. And 
you know, in some ways you could see what we're doing is sort of a halfway house between a regular school where, you know, you have to show up and do this and do that to get grades versus uh, kind of personalized homeschooling. I've had people describe what I do as homeschooling by professionals. And so even at the high school level, we're incredibly flexible at the high school level. If you want your child to get 24 credits from an accredited institution to go to college, we can do that. But if you say, no, I'm going to be this amazing writer and I'm not going to take my chemistry class, no problem. You know, as long as parents or students are on board with that, let's get you published all over the place. Let's have you writing whatever kind of stuff you want to write to be amazing. And, um, you know, hell with chemistry, you know, that kind of thing. So we very much want the student to own their own education. And we're experts who help develop in that develop that talent in whatever direction they want with an eye towards pragmatically, what do you need to get into the kind of colleges you want? Just one footnote on that earlier conversation, some state colleges are more bureaucratic. Some public high schools are more bureaucratic. So if a family is looking at re-entering a more bureaucratic institutional setting, we might say, hey, you really should get your 24 credits because that receiving institution is more bureaucratic. And then there may be trade-offs. Hey, do I want my freedom? And then I don't, may not be able to go to this bureaucratic institution? Okay, but it's kind of eyes wide open. You own your own education. We're extremely knowledgeable about options and we kind of coach whatever pathway is most effective for that particular child. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that about having to you know, how bureaucratic they can be. Because I think that one of the main reasons that I wanted you to have you on the show is because I see this giant paradigm shift of people who are leaving not only the cities to go out to the countryside or moving from one state to another, but people who are just all out leaving. Like, I mean, we're helping record numbers of people move down to Latin America. And then one of the big things is what about the education? So... Um, I don't think that in this instance, we're going to have a lot of people who are going to be having problems with those types of things, because I think that they'll be living in Panama, where I am, or in Mexico, or in Argentina, or something like that, but want to have their education done in the United States for their kids. Um, a little follow-up question to what you were just talking about, though. Out of curiosity, the five days a week, morning till afternoon. Did you do that because you found that is the best system? Or did you do that because that is what people expect and you wanted to fall into that? Or for some other reason that I'm completely not thinking of? No, that's a great question. So first of all, I, I'm, again, all about flexibility. Um, and so I, you know, in Austin, we have probably one of the richest and most diverse uh, homeschooling ecosystems and alt school alt schooling ecosystems, there is a one day a week school. And so if people want one day a week, there's a place that offers that. Um, I created another program that allowed a la carte offerings. So if you wanna come Tuesday and Thursday afternoons, you could do that. Um, the five day week is sort of the standard and for parents who want their child supervised five days a week, that's you know the norm. And I would say even with virtual education, a lot of parents feel more comfortable knowing there's something kind of organized and managed five days a week. Because we offer a lot of time for personal projects, it can be a you know flexible during the day. And if a child is you know productive with a writing or productive with personal projects, we can do that. It's kind of a negotiation with parents and students how much how closely supervised the whole thing is. But I would say it's really uh, out of parent need.
One of my brick and mortar schools in Austin was a four day a week school with a fifth day, in that case Friday, for personal projects. And some students were more productive about it than others. And, and so I, th I think a lot of this gets into, um, you know, the parent and student coming to terms with this is, um, you know, this is what's right for me and my child right now. I'll give you kind of a specific case. So we've had a lot of world-class athletes come to my schools. And in many of those cases, the athletic demands to be, you know, world-class are substantial. And so the kid is practicing a lot and we can be flexible. So if a kid needs to miss a lot of classes because they're going to races or tournaments or whatever it is, no problem. And clearly those parents and children have prioritized their athletic career over traditional five day a week session. At the same time, you know, we, you know, five days a week supervision when that is necessary and needed. And so I think it's a matter of creating um, a place to go that is safe and supportive, going back to the Montessori of a curated environment. So you're providing a curated environment five days a week. If there are more important things to do, we totally recognize that as long as the parents are on board. The tricky issues come if parent and child disagree. So then we appreciate that. Yeah, but I would say mostly because we're focused on what the child loves and how to make them amazing. Kids love our program. So, you know, do they always get their work done on time? No, but I would say that's part of life too. You know, I'm sure we've all worked with teams where not everybody on the team get their work done on time. And we're very real world about that. You know, I, I explain to kids, look, no, no grades. Again, if you want the 24 credit standard high school accredited option, we have to give grades, but our standard courses have no grades, but there is a performance review. And it's like, hey, Mikkel, you know, you were late four out of five meetings. Uh, you know, I couldn't recommend you for, you know, this team over there because you're late all the time. And so we, we try to connect everything to this real world. It's not about artificial school rigmarole. It's about, you know, the creative professional world, the entrepreneurial world. Who do we recommend and why? Um, how do we, who do we take serious and why? And most kids actually, when they're given the freedom to step up to the plate or not, most kids want to improve. And, you know, Middle school, they're still working on time management. They're still working on deadlines. But by the time they get to be in high school, most of them, if they're doing what they love, yeah, they want to knock it out of the ballpark and they're excited about it. And we've had kids, you know, like doing video projects. That's a big thing. They'll spend all weekend long working on their video projects. And people say, do you have homework? What's homework? I mean, you know, we set expectations together about projects and writing and you know, if you're doing your math, we have, you know, math that you have to get done. And then we report back to parents and students. This is what you did. This is what you didn't do. And no shame or blame. It's just, you know, again, you said you want to go to MIT, but you're not doing any math. Hey, dude, this is, you're not on track. Yeah. Um, so you know, then it's just more very realistic. Explaining the consequences on the time management side, explaining the consequences opposed to guilting the child and being negative and making them feel bad about themselves. You're just clearly explaining, listen, if you continue to show up late, then this is what's going to happen. If you're okay with that, I mean, then you're, you're not really following all the goals that you set for yourself and how that's going to play out and just being more of a mentor. What I was going to say is that um, very concretely, we encourage students um, really in middle school to start practicing taking the SAT. And in ninth grade, we have time three times a year in September and January and May, we have students take the SAT voluntarily. If you wanna opt out, you can. But the case we make is that, look, if you take it in ninth grade and you don't like your scores, you've got four years to improve. And you can look at kind of average score levels and you don't wanna be average, you wanna be in the top 25%. So 
let's see where your scores are, see where you want to go to college, and let's look at, are you on track? If not, um, either you need to up your game or you need to change your perspective of where you want to go to college. Um, again, we're not telling you what to do. Uh, it's just, what, what are your priorities? And I have had students say, you know what? I don't, I don't want to go to college or I don't want to play the SAT game. No, totally, no, no, you know. Um, with respect to things like creatives, I, um, again, Cal Newport, he likes to say, be so amazing they can't ignore you. That actually comes from Steve Martin. So, you know, if you want to have a career as a video producer, channel, you've got to be amazing. You've got to be performance oriented. That has absolutely nothing to do with academic metrics. But there is a metric and kind of a metaphor that I like in talking to students about this is, you know, American Idol, you know, in one way it's cheesy. On the other hand, we've got, you know, people lining up long lines waiting for days to be, um, you know, humiliated by that judge um, spacing out on his name. But you know what I'm talking about. But that's because they chose it. If a child chooses to enter a competition or an audition, whether it's a math competition or American Idol or YouTube or whatever, they're putting themselves out there. They've chosen to compete. And so we encourage students to, yeah, pick where you wanna be amazing and then let's support you going all out. But we're not gonna force you to play a game that is not the game you wanna play in or a game that you're not good at. Yeah, or that you you think that they should be in, which is really what I always saw going through school is like, well, this is how you should behave. This is what you should care about. This is what you should be doing. Like, I don't care about any of this stuff. I didn't care about baseball. I don't want to, you know, in gym class. And I didn't care about trigonometry in math. And it's like, I mean, I was all art all the time. And that was good by me. Um, you mentioned something else that I want to discuss. You said supervised. So I guess my question is this, is your program only for uh, parents who are entrepreneurs or do remote work and are in the household, or are your guides kind of acting as the supervision and teaching the children responsibilities so that they, I don't know, what, what's kids, what, what's parents' fears? Did they burn down the kitchen or something like that, you know? Well, you know, all, via Zoom, all we can do is show up and see if you showed up. But I would say that the model really is the professional workplace, and in this case, the virtual professional workplace. So, um, you know, a lot of our parents of middle schoolers are off at jobs. And so we have kids 10, 10 or 11 that are at home alone all day. But the parent knows that the kid likes school. The kid is eager to get online. The kid is eager to do what they're doing. And if for some reason a kid doesn't show up for class, we notify a parent right away. So, you know, obviously we have absolutely no control, uh, you know, about the kid burning the house down or not. But, you know, if, if a parent knows that the kid enjoys school and the guides will let them know if for some reason, um, you know, a kid disappears, then, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big, big fan of free range, range uh, parenting and in general respecting, you know, the, the responsibility of kids. So I think it makes sense uh, for parents, you know, if they've got a reasonably care, there are a few kids I wouldn't leave alone, but I think most normal healthy kids and certainly the way you're raising your kids, um, you know, I was, I was staying home alone at 10, no big deal. Yeah, I was babysitting at 10. At 12, 13, I was working, probably about 13, I was working in the farms during the summer, picking the ragweed out of bean fields for eight hours a day as a teenager so that I could make enough money so that I could buy the stuff that I wanted because we just didn't have it. I mean, like, uh, I certainly didn't come from a silver spoon type of environment. Everything that I had, I had to do myself. But I mean, 
I was doing that type of things at that age, and I'm glad to see that a lot of your families that you work with entrust their children to do that, um, that they don't have to be uh, put in a parenting. prison sentence type yeah. of... Um, have a bell? Do you, you guys don't have a bell, do you? No, no, like not 60 at all. Minutes, the bell no, no, nothing bell. like that. Nothing. Like, again, you know, professional <laughs> workplace. And well, you know, just um, even. I just think of, back to the, you know, yeah, the, how a traditional education was built was to condition you for factory work. I mean, well, and, and exactly. And so the metaphor I, I talk to kids about openly too is uh, the the professional norms of the adult creative workplace. So, you know, you go into a, and it's interesting because there are norms. So if you go into like a design firm or a coding firm, it can be pretty casual. People are hanging out and talking and eating snacks even, but they don't make out in the middle of, you know, a workplace. They usually don't put their feet up on the desk. Um, you know, there, there are still certain norms of politeness and respect, even when you're very casual. And because we are casual, a lot of what we do is communicate to kids because they do need to be trained a little bit that, you know, maybe picking your nose on screen is not a good idea, but, um, you know, you can have a cup of tea while you're talking, you know, and so there are these kind of uh, invisible norms that, you know, we've grown up to live in this world, and actually kids love it. Once they get those boundaries, okay, totally, I get it. Unbelievable. So I guess the last thing that I really want to talk to you about was the mentorship or the, the time that you said that the student gets one-on-one -on -one time with an adult. Can you paint me a picture? What does that look like? I, I'm really interested because mentorship is something that I've been very fortunate. I've had very many mentors in my life. I still work with many mentors who help me build my business. And at the same time, I give back and I work with a couple of um, high school level kids that uh, teenagers that I mentor and I dedicate time to and is super, super rewarding. So I would love to hear kind of your experience and how you do this um, through your program. No, that's a great, great question. So I would say there's sort of three strands of standard mentorship, and then I'll talk about kind of specialized mentorship later. But the three strands are, on the one hand, you know, academic 101, you know, how's your math going? How's your writing going? How's your reading going? You know, how's, are you managing your time? Um, you're feeling stressed. What do you love? What you're not liking? You know, that sort of basic uh, is the academic piece working pretty well. Our strand is um, kind of modeled after Stanford's designing your life. So that are your long-term goals. Do you know if you want to be more of an engineer or creative? Do you know be an entrepreneur? Do you want, know if you want to go to college or not? Or not? Do you know if you want to have a family or not? One exercise we did related to that was we had students actually look at average wages for a particular degree and cost of living in particular towns so that they could figure out if they were an engineer in Omaha, they were living pretty nicely. If they were an artist in London, they had to have six roommates. You know, just very basic. Let's think about what it's like to live certain life. And then, um, you know, what are your life goals? And then finally, then the third part is uh, social emotional. You know, how are you doing? Uh, are you feeling confident? Are you feeling strong? What is causing you to kind of may maybe back off? What are your relationships like? And, you know, the idea there is that you can never separate the academic out from the emotional. And no matter how good parents are, I think it is really helpful for to have kids, certainly uh, in adolescence, to have a non-parent adult to talk through things with. And, you know, there's a level at which it could get into professional therapy, in which case they, we would refer them to a professional therapist. But uh, a lot of these become pretty intimate. The, the kids really like having a trusted adult to talk about things. 
And then one of the things we can do is, um, I think this is very different from regular school. Every child has, you know, boyfriend, my grandma's sick, where for three weeks, maybe three months, you can't perform because you're going through uh, some kind of a tragedy or, or challenge or whatever. And then we can say, totally get it. And we can kind of back off the academics uh, during that part. And, you know, they, the mentor communicates with the rest of the guidance, look, you know, so-and-so is going through this. Um, let's work on that. So the mentorship combines that kind of basic academics, the lifetime designing your life kind of stuff, and then the social emotional. Um, and so it's really kind of a full service. What do you need? Then go to the specialized mentorship. At some points, a personal project will get to the point where, hey, I can no longer help you with your you know, introduction to coding or digital marketing. I need to pass you off onto an expert. And so at some point, students serious about personal projects get that part of their mentoring passed on to a serious domain expert. Um, but yeah, I, I think a lot of kids say that the mentorship is the most valuable part of what they do. Actually, a lot of guides say it's their favorite part too. You know, that it's funny. Yeah, exactly. It's funny in some ways. Regular conventional academics, ed tech software, software kind of does that. But we need human relationships. We urgently need human relationships. So the way I would think of it is, um, and we do use ed tech software. So I mentioned Khan Academy earlier. You know, we have all sorts of grammar software. Software. My vision of education is that human beings should do best what human beings do. Tech should do best what tech does. And I think what a lot of ed tech advocates have not realized is that no matter how good the ed tech is, we still need the human side. So that's why the kind of conversational style, interactive style of both our Socratics and then our projects, as well as the one-on-one -on -one mentoring, give the kids the high-touch mentoring and the human relationships they need. And then, yeah, if their grammar needs work, hey, Mikkel, you need to polish up on this grammar software over there. And simple done, do it at your own pace. Long as you're on track mm -hmm. for college, who cares? Well, that makes sense. Um, well, that's interesting you mentioned about working with the child to talk about career path, then the money that they would ideally be able to make in that career, and then base it on the city that they would like to live in, that gives so much context. Because, I mean, I have so many friends that I can remember would go on to school, do a college degree in one thing, then like six months later, after like entering the workforce, decided that they did not like it, and then had to go on and go back to college to get re-educated to do something because it was either not for them, they didn't understand, it wasn't gonna provide the money, they didn't understand really what it entailed or the hours that were involved. I remember one person went back to school to be a Coast Guard, not realizing that Coast Guard in Canada means that you take a boat and you're going all along the um, the Great Lakes, which means that you're away from your family for a week at a time. And it's like, really? Like, you never thought that through? That you weren't going to be, you were going to be alone on a boat with five other men for a week? And, like, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, no, an exercise you like, and you might want to do this maybe at some point with your children, is um, I like to have children write an autobiography from the age of 100. So the idea is they've lived their whole life, and they write about what they did throughout their life. And when they're younger, you know, often we start this around 12 or 13, and sometimes they're a little bit outlandish and cheesy. I don't know if you saw the movie, I think way back in the 90s, Buckaroo Banzai, but it's about somebody who's a Nobel laureate and a rock star and a superstar athlete. And, you know, a lot of young kids have these 
incredible fantasy versions of their life. And so I've actually had kids in their autobiographies from 100. Well, first I win my Nobel Prize and then my rock band, you know, plays this stadium like, okay. Um, you know, but then gradually, because we're in this process of getting them to become a little bit more realistic about life options and what it takes, you know, without discouraging, we want ambition, but we also want realistic ambition. Then gradually, as they get to be 15, 16, 17, their autobiographies become much more sophisticated and nuanced and more realistic. And they actually relationships as they get older, you know, we've had beautiful autobiographies where they talk about marriages and divorces and their parents dying and, you know, having children and those responsibilities. So they really start to think through all kinds of aspects of life that I think normal kids, normal teenagers don't even begin to think about. So a lot of this is what you focus on and what you encourage them to focus on. And this is where, again, going back to the schooling and unschooling thing, schooling focuses on the history test, the chemistry test. Unschooling is like, hey, do whatever you want, play video games all day. And we're like, no, let's have a conversation. One of the conversations is what is your life gonna look like? And that conversation is a seven year long conversation. We're not gonna tell you at any point but you can imagine if kids are constantly imagining their lives and thinking about what's involved in different life paths, wow, incredibly powerful. Well, I think if any kids in the world are gonna go on to do all those incredible things that you just mentioned, they're gonna be coming from your school. Amazing, amazing, amazing conversation, Michael. I really, really appreciate your time and your generosity with sharing just so much with my audience today. If they want to reach out to you, if they want to find out more about what you do, about your programs, about your books, about everything, uh, where can we send them? So expanseonline.co, not .com, .co. And the idea is expanse. We're expanding, you know, the reality of the child. So expanseonline.co. And on my biography there, it includes my books, The Habit of Thought and Be the Solution, both of which are available uh, on Amazon, and links to my many other projects, some of which maybe we'll discuss on another occasion. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Michael, and I will talk to you soon, okay? Sounds good. Thanks, Mikhail. Bye-bye. I have a very big announcement. After a ton of requests for a place for expat and expat hopefuls to network and get to know each other, I decided to start a new Facebook group. It's called the Expat Money Forum, and it's 100% free to join. We literally just started the group, so you can really network and get to know the individuals there. We will be keeping a very close eye on this group, and I already have three awesome moderators volunteer to help me out. So to make it easy on you, I set up a really simple redirect link. All you have to do to join this group right now is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash forum. We already have a bunch of previous guests from my show in the group, so you can ask your questions directly to the professionals or get help from the people who are on the ground in the country you are interested in being an expat in. So I hope that you will join us in our new Facebook group by going to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash forum, and I will see you there. Thank you so much for listening to today's interview. Talk soon. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. 
My friends over at serenitynewsletter.com have a special opportunity open to those interested in learning advanced investing techniques in the crypto space. This membership is of the highest quality and is run by a dear friend of mine who happens to manage one of the most successful crypto hedge funds in the world. Crypto is the future, and those who make smart plays now have an opportunity to earn life-changing returns. Go to serenitynewsletter.com to watch a special video presentation now. That's serenitynewsletter.com.